There's this common misperception that agriculture producers are really stuck in their ways. I can see how people could get that impression when they look at a cowboy on a horse, or by the fact that many agriculture producers are growing the same things that their grandparents or even their great grandparents grew. But then you look at all the technological advancements in agriculture. Like sprayers, no till, tractors with GPS, portable watering systems. And then it doesn't really seem like agriculture producers are that opposed to change. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we are discussing the regenerative mindset. In February of this year, Three agriculture producers spoke at the Ranching Opportunities Conference in Olds, Alberta. They were the last session of the conference, and the name of the panel they were on was What Regenerative Agriculture Means to You and How to Make It Pay. The panel was organized by Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, and due to a last-minute change, it was moderated by me. I won't lie to you, going into that panel session, I was a little worried for these three guys. Defining regenerative agriculture isn't exactly easy, and it's quite personal too. And answering the how to make it pay part is pretty daunting in my opinion, especially when you're talking to a room full of ranchers. Well, I'm happy to report that Daryl Chubb, Sheldon Atwood, and Tim Ray just went for it that day, and I think they knocked it out of the park. The only problem, aside from the fact that Sheldon couldn't be there in person because the poor guy was stuck in Ecuador, was that nobody recorded it. This is why we're doing this podcast episode right now. now. This episode's a little different. It's a little bit like a train. Not a train wreck, just a normal train that people jump on and off at at their own leisure. We did the interview over Zoom, but because Daryl, Sheldon, and Tim have fairly busy lives... They jumped onto the Zoom call at different times, and they left the Zoom call at different times. So you'll notice at the start, you'll hear very, very little from Sheldon, but a lot from Daryl and Tim. And then at the end, it's mostly just Tim. Well, now you know why. Sheldon and Tim were both participants in our Regenerative Agriculture Lab last year. And Tim's going to be a participant this year again. Just in case you need a refresher... The Regen Lab is a social innovation lab trying to figure out how we can accelerate the uptake of regenerative agriculture in Alberta, but do it in a way that Regen Egg doesn't get greenwashed in the process. That Regen Egg's potential to deliver a lot of positive outcomes for the environment, people, food. Make sure we don't lose this, that it doesn't get forgotten. We're all pretty excited to relaunch the lab this year. The diversity of participants is just amazing this year. The last year we went out there and we intentionally recruited just producers for the lab. But this year we've got this great motley crew of producers, scientists, financial advisors, owners of food stores, government and associations. Anyway, all of this is to say this episode's part of our podcast exploration of regenerative agriculture, even though, as I've said many times before, the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast is the podcast highlighting land management practices and farm technology that are good for the farm or ranch and good for the climate and are a great fit for Alberta. I will full well admit 
that our Regen Egg episodes have been a little bit more on the philosophical side and less on the practices and technology side. This episode is no different if you haven't already figured that out by the title. I promise we'll get back to those practices and technology soon on the podcast. But what Sheldon, Tim, and Daryl have to say about the regenerative mindset does apply to those practices in tech. That mindset is a starting point, a solid foundation for implementing, adopting, and seeing value in a lot of the practices in farm technology we talk about on this podcast. Let's kick things off with Daryl and Tim. Keep in mind while you're listening that the interview was recorded in February of this year. So my name is Daryl Chubb. I live just west here in Canada, Alberta. So we're about 45 minutes northeast of Calgary. Between my wife and my son and I, we're... We own a quarter of land. We rent some other other grass that we run cows on and grow some annual crops for, for winter feed purposes. Within our farm, we it's very small. It's it's part of the business, not not our sole business. Um, so both my wife and I are independently employed. I do agronomy and farm consulting, focusing on regenerative agriculture as part of it and that takes me through parts of Alberta, Saskatchewan and a little bit into Manitoba. So what do we do on our farm in terms of regenerative? We're using multi-species crops, playing around with you know, some different fertility on, on lower levels, looking at more of a lower cost input into, into this. But my main goal is to improve soil, build soil. We are on a very rocky light piece of land so my topsoil is just about non-existent my resilient moisture resiliency is very low so if we get a hot wind out of the southeast for a day or two our goals are, are to build soil build resiliency create a healthy situation for cattle for us we raise our own beef as well not necessarily grass fed, but grass finished beef is what we're what we're working with, and we sell a little bit on the side as well. Perfect, thanks, Doug. Uh, Tim, same same question to you. Uh, where do you live? What do you do on and off farm? And if you could just tell us a bit about the ranch. You betcha. My name is Tim Ray, and I uh, live in ranch at Irkana, Alberta, just right near Daryl. Actually, we we used to be a mixed farm operation supporting uh, two or three families and over the years it's become uh, strictly a cow-calf operation and with, with backgrounder and yearlings and grassers when we can. Uh, what we got going on here is we try to graze year-round and so uh, along with Daryl we're always strategizing how to manage uh, forages and livestock and meeting nutritional requirements with available forage. So that's what we do and we try to stay in the black doing that. Uh, Off-farm, I do have an off-farm job. I work about half-time uh, in the nearby Airdrie as a pastor of a church. Perfect. Great, Tim. And then, uh, Tim, this question's for you as well. I'm just curious, uh, can you recall the first time you heard about regenerative agriculture? Sure. Well, long before 
the term regenerative had been coined, at least in the popular language. I uh, took a course, well, I studied at University of Alberta Agriculture, and I took a grazing course. And they showed us this map, they call it a grazing budget, and they show how different plants are growing at different times of the year and how they maintain their nutritional profile and expend their resources at different times. And that was the first time I really realized that agriculture is a chess match and you're using different players and different plants um, and different metabolic processes through the different seasons to achieve your agronomic goals. So that was the first, but that wasn't there. That was just grazing management. I'm realizing as I look back on it, that was the first time I started to see uh, these patterns. And then in 2001, as I finished my degree, uh, they called it sustainable agriculture. That was the course I was taking, a, a keystone course in my degree. And the professor said, yeah, there's this really interesting research. Um, they're growing two crops together and they're yielding more than when they, they grow them separately. You know, they were getting an extra 20% total crop by growing them in the same space. And again, they, they couldn't really explain it. They didn't quite know how or why, but that was that really got the gears going in me too, thinking, wow, there's something more here in the natural order of things that then became over time, you know, what we call uh, the basis of regenerative agriculture. Great. Thanks, Tim. Daryl, same question to you. Can you recall the first time you heard about regenerative agriculture? I don't know if it was from Tim. Why did you find it interesting or what was the attraction there? Yeah, my journey is quite a bit different. Never heard of such a thing through university. My time in university was same, same as Tim, late 90s, early 2000s. And then I went into the in crop input world and grain marketing world to start my career. And, you know, it was very status quo thinking, high input, high fertility, so on and so forth. And then I spent a number of years managing a grain farm, which we were also a feedlot, fairly large feedlot. So it was a big operation, busy operation. And I, I learned to hate cows. Uh, yeah, cows just meant more work. And in 2012, I left that farm, started my own consulting business, what I'm doing today. And it's changed since then. But my journey from there on was looking at things a little bit differently. And I got to do my Nutfield Scholarship starting in 2014, wrapped that up in 2015. And great program for self-learning, self-education. And it, it changed a lot of things about me when I look at agriculture, what I ended up doing. And through that, asking different questions, seeing different parts of the world, what people were doing and indirectly a mutual friend of Tim and ours. And he introduced me to Nicole Master. She was in, in our area in 2015 or 2016. Got to meet Nicole Masters and, and the relationship kind of blossomed from there. And I was able to apprentice with Nicole Masters for, for basically two years, give or take. So that really got me immersed into regenerative agriculture, more on the consultant side. But when we bought our property, that just kind of fostered, you know, personal choices and my path. So when did I first hear about it? I would have gone through my Nutfield scholarship travels and then just exploded with the introduction of the full master. 
Nicole Masters is likely not a new name for most people listening to this podcast right now, but just in case you don't know her, Nicole Masters is a researcher and author from New Zealand. She's also the director of Integrity Soils, which is an education company that provides coaching and training in regenerative agriculture. The title of the book that Nicole Masters wrote is For the Love of Soil, Strategies to Regenerate Our Food Production System. Her work takes her to Australia and North America as well. She's even come to Alberta a couple times. The Nuffield Scholarship that Daryl mentioned is something that anyone involved in agriculture can apply for. It's like a travel and study abroad program for people passionate about ag, and the scholarship's worth about $15,000. Now, what Tim said right there about two different crops being interplanted and yielding more than a monocrop is something I also find quite exciting and something we cover in episode 34, Intercropping. But just very quickly, the idea here is with two or more complementary or mutually beneficial crops, you can get the same yields as a monocrop, but with less land. We get into all those things like overyielding rates, land equivalency ratios, relay cropping, companion cropping, and episode 34. Definitely recommend listening to it. The next question I asked Tim and Daryl is what regenerative agriculture practices they have going on at their place and what regen egg practices they'd like to implement one day. Yeah, so with us only having a handful of cows, but whether you have 10 or 1,000, you still have to feed them and be profitable at them. So what I'm putting into place is using some different additional products, using things like Phoenix, using things like bullying nutrition, using multi-species crops for our, you know, intended for our feed side of things, plus managed grazing, call it whatever you want, whether it's rotational grazing, ant grazing, we're doing our best to change water systems and do what we can to improve our grazing practices as well. So. There's many that I'm learning year to year, day to day. I'd like to do and understand my soil a little bit better from a chemistry and biological point of view. And then how can I start unlocking more of the nutrition that may or may not be there? Great. Thanks, Dara. Uh, Tim, same question to you. Uh, curious about the regenerative agriculture practices that you have in place at your place right now and some of the practices you'd like to put into practice in the future. Sure. Well, we kind of, the biggest thing that we do here is we have a lot of perennial pasture. Most pasture is perennial, but my uncle rotationally grazed for about 20 years. And then we started getting into soil sampling and this kind of stuff and just realized by happenstance that this was actually a really good thing for the soil. And so not really pursuing a regenerative goal. They're just trying to keep the ranch in the black and feed cows, realize, hey, we're not just feeding cows, we're managing grass. Oh, we're not just managing grass, we're managing a soil ecosystem. Yeah, that's that's the biggest thing that we do. And that's probably the largest ecological good and service we provide as ranchers. Now, uh, in our winter feed program, we grow cereal crops mixed in with various other things. and sure on your podcast, you've had lots of people talk about cocktails and species diversity. 
Um, but we've played with a number of things uh, in that regard. And probably the biggest goal that I would like to pursue in the next couple of years is establishing a more robust rotation within our winter feeding regime. So we're taking advantage more of, of different profiles of plants like the C4 plants in the heat of summer or the winter annuals that can you plant later in the season and they come on uh, the next spring, relay cropping, intercropping, these kinds of things. Uh, we already do that. I'd like us to see if we can push the limits a little more. And we're lucky to have Daryl down the road because he sees a lot of farms and attends a lot of seminars and he uh, kind of guides us in our goals. So working with Daryl, those are my goals. Just going to jump in here quickly to introduce Sheldon because Sheldon didn't get a chance to introduce himself when we recorded. So Sheldon Atwood is the CEO of Western Ranchlands Corporation, which is like a um, ranching and land management firm. For example, Western Ranchlands owns and manages the 14,000 acres that is Tomahawk Ranch west of Edmonton. Along with being a rancher, Sheldon also has a PhD in range science. Yeah, well, okay, sure. The biggest one, of course, is, is grazing management that really for us boils down to getting really big groups of cattle on uh, really small pieces of dirt and uh, circulating them around the ranch. The, uh, the biggest constraints to doing that <laughs> are one, getting your people on board and getting water in place to do it. And so water systems has been an important part of the, the regenerative infrastructure that we've had to put in place to do that. Tomahawk Ranch is a really unique set of circumstances, I guess. But uh, some of the things that we've been able to discover or, or problems we've been able to solve there I think apply to a lot of people in a lot of places. I grew up in Southern Alberta and a lot of the neighbors use dugouts exclusively for watering their livestock and stuff like that. And I remember back when uh, Orrin Kinsey and the guys at the University of Lethbridge Research Station helped producers understand how important clean water in abundance is for the uh, growth of cattle and for the, the performance of livestock. Further north here at Tomahawk, the same principles apply. Good quality, clean water is important for, for livestock. Uh, it's important year round, but uh, you need it in volume to be able to run these big groups that uh, supercharge the ecosystem and the soil building processes with the animal impact and with the, uh, the rest period needed to get the soil biology operating properly and uh, and that kind of stuff to get more even utilization of the pastures and and even out the competitive relationships between the more desirable plants and the, and the less desirable plants and any even just to leave space for people and wildlife right yeah in the the days off let's call it so the the innovation i think that we came up with was to link a a lot of uh, low volume wells, which are common in our area and is certainly a feature of many ranching properties. Often the reason why marginally cropped lands aren't also grazed is just a, a difficulty getting water to those properties. So we've linked these different wells together using um, 
pipeline systems, a couple of different approaches, a, a circulating buried system that uh, allows us to uh, put water in remote sites without power at those uh, far locations. And then we circulate the water around because we can't bury it deep enough to get below the permanent frost line. So yeah, it, it enables us to distribute livestock more widely, to distribute those nutrients across a broader area and uh, better utilize the property and our resources, support our bale grazing and other uh, nutrient management objectives. That's a big one on, on the more livestock oriented side of things. I've talked elsewhere uh, about some silvopasture projects that we're involved with in uh, taking overdense forested areas and strategically thinning them with the help of some qualified foresters and some wildlife biologists that help us design mosaics of habitat and uh, vegetation structure that uh, improves forage abundance and quality for livestock in the areas that we graze, but uh, also improve habitat characteristics for wildlife in those areas as well as the areas that we're interested in that we don't graze. All right, we finally arrived at my favorite part of the episode. This is where Sheldon, Daryl, and Tim explain what the regenerative mindset is. Yeah, when I hear a mindset of regenerative agriculture, there's a few kind of handles that, that I hold on to. One is this idea, it's a linguistic key, humus, humility, human, and humor. They all have the same base. And I think one of the big realizations that I had is that much of our technocratic industrial world sees the human person as being separate from the environment around them. Humans impose their will on an object rather than engage with a mutually influential subject, right? Those are philosophical terms of object and subject, but basically an it versus a person. And I think the big insight for me as I try to manage this farm and as I spend my days and even assess my own kind of spirit and attitude, am I imposing my will on something or am I submitting to a mutual relationship with the land and the natural processes and the, yeah, the animals and creatures and economy and neighborhood and community? of which uh, comprise my life. And it's one thing to get in there with boxing gloves and say, I'm going to make it happen my way. And it's another thing to enter it with open hands and uh, risk scars and vulnerability. What I'm suggesting is that the land changes me. I am part of it. And then as I, whatever I do with my equipment or my pickup truck or whatever animals or chemicals I apply to it, I have to ask, hey, I'm also doing this to me. And, and that's, a, that's a real uh, wrestling match then that, that I have to undergo as I think, hey, how do I want to live? How do I want to be? How is this system shaping me? Thanks, Tim. That's a great answer. All right, uh, Daryl, same question to you. That statement about regenerative agriculture being a mindset, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, well, to build on Tim's, I mean, Tim put it in a very good way. You know, a regenerative mindset to me focus on production and economics so much and regenerative is about the whole system the community whether that's 
our community as people or the ecological community. So, and how can we bring all of that together and move forward, but still, still be profitable and, and be able to keep people on the farm rather than just on a continual treadmill of a break-even society? I watched the webinar the other day, and one guy put it put it the best way that we're in a commodity-driven market, and commodity-driven markets are break-even at best, and we're stuck. Regenerative is is planning, it's management, it's change. Whereas today, in in my professional side of things, we talk about a crop plan for this year and what that acre is going to do. It's not a not a long term discussion. And then and then for me on a more of a personal side, you know, it's about my family. We we had a, a child a little late later in life, but neither one of us wanted to raise a kid in town. So now we get to Show them what we're doing, teach them how kind of how we grew up on the farm. Yeah, it's a different appreciation for life. Good answer. Thanks, Daryl. Sheldon, like the guy who did have the PowerPoint presentation called the regenerative mindset. I figure you got a few things to say. Yeah, I know I'll probably do. I think if you think of it, the term regenerative agriculture evolved to a certain extent following dissatisfaction amongst a lot of producers at the uh, the innovation edge, the cutting edge of holistic or, or ecologically based management practices, when faced with some probably subtle but very real misconceptions surrounding the, uh, the earlier use and frequent use still today uh, of the word sustainable and sustainability. At, at first glance, sustainability seems like a very worthy goal in a very worthy uh, process to, to support. And, and it is, but um, at the same time, it, it has a connotation of maintaining something in a current state, right? And the fallacies in that framework were challenged in realizing that often as partners with the environment, we want to encourage it to do something even greater than what it's currently doing, right? We want to we want to sponsor and influence outcomes for society and for ourselves that are in excess of what has been done in the past, right? So we don't want to be sustainable of semi-successful system. We want to be sponsors of a more successful system. The concept of sustainability for some people incorporates a higher level understanding of ecological processes and the the knowledge that everything that lives dies right but if it is to live and contribute and then be utilized as fodder for something else to live that's a sustainable process at the level of the system but it's a very regenerative process that follows all three elements of the, the ecological growth curve, which starts at birth and goes through early growth stages where things are rapidly accelerating and improving. And this is a true principle across all levels, right? Within the individual organism or across populations or anything else. And this first phase of rapid growth and improvement then gives way to a phase of production and maturation. So there's less rapid growth, 
but there's sustained for a period of time productivity that comes from that alfalfa field or that pregnant mature cow or you know that population of prairie dogs whatever it is that you're concerned about follows this constant pattern but every biological system every biological organism follows the pattern that then moves from that second phase in the third phase of senescence and ultimately death. And regenerative agriculture is a mindset that respects that whole cycle and respects the fact that we wanna interact with the ecology, with the, the processes of nature and encourage it to go through those processes and different aspects and different communities in ways that we value, that produce the things that we want to see from society. And certainly there's an economic component to many of our business enterprises that wants that side to be sustainable <laughs> and regenerative in producing ongoing revenues and value-adding elements. But it's just as true if we're concerned about spotted owls or other things in the environment that we value and care about. We want to see them promoted and we want to see that system go through that constant regeneration and revitalization that is necessary to support the things we care about in the long run. And that's the mindset that you bring to it is that we're partners with nature, partners with the land, like Tim said, right? And what can it do to change us? How can we learn from it? And how can we partner with it to create the outcomes that, that we want? Is it necessary to adopt a regenerative mindset to implement regenerative agriculture practices? Couldn't I just keep the commodity games mindset or the go big and go bust mindset? and still implement regenerative practices? What if somebody's just paying me a ton of money to implement these practices? Isn't that good enough? Why is it necessary for me to change my mindset? Honestly, to a certain degree and to a certain level, the practices are going to lead to some of the right outcomes. The reality is though, that recipes don't work in nature, right? It's gonna throw you curveballs in terms of things you don't know or understand or relationships are gonna shift and change. And if you don't have the right mindset and the right ethical framework for how to interpret and react to unknown change, then you're going to get offside of your ultimate goal eventually. So in my mind, a regenerative mindset includes the structures of incentives, and programs and systems that sponsor or support the right types of activities and the adaptability, that's an ecological principle right there, in the face of constant change. And frankly, I don't think there's a problem with the go big or go home mindset if you recognize that ecological economies of scale are just as important as financial economies of scale and the ability to grow in both settings is one success strategy, but it's also successful to go the opposite direction and to become a better niche enterprise, right? And to focus on higher margins and be a really big fish in a really small pond. Both things are successful, both things have merit, and both things have limitations and weaknesses. 
certainly respect and appreciate the perspectives, Daryl and, uh, and Tim, I did the conversation as well and look forward to hearing more from you guys. Thanks a lot, Sheldon. Daryl, Tim, you guys uh, got something you want to share on that one? I don't know how you can be regenerative without some sort of a mind shift. Because if you're just doing something because, like Sheldon said, a recipe in nature doesn't exist. If you're doing something based on a recipe out of a blog and not looking and observing what's going on. So one thing I drive down here is it's a shift from observation, from prescriptive to observation. If you don't have a mindset to look at things objectively and you just, I do this because I do this and I, that's the way it's done. Yeah, I, I don't think you can proceed very far. However, I mean, what is regenerative? What is the actual definition? It doesn't exist. So on the flip side is as long as you're setting some goals for your personal goals, your farm goals, your ranch goals, and you're meeting them, and those goals are continually changing and improving. I guess that too is regenerative. Every generative movement of human society, okay, I'll tie this to the notion of agriculture, and which is different than agronomics, because at least agriculture recognizes that there is a human dimension to the production of food. So in this culture, right, we've been through a number of philosophical shifts, you know, throughout the last 10,000 years of kind of modern society. But uh, I'm inspired by the uh, existentialists myself, you know, that were writing in the 1800s and such. And basically, they got annoyed with all the prescriptive drones, you know, that with this notion that if you are to be alive, you have to recognize that you are an animated thing. You, you cannot just follow a recipe, you know, get up, go to church, go to work, have kids, say, I love you. It just doesn't work. Life is not a recipe. It requires, you know, as Kierkegaard says, a leap and we're jumping into the unknown. And when we do that, we become fully ourselves. And so if we think we're going to manage our farms on a recipe, we will never manifest fully what we could be as producers or what we could have as businesses or what we could have as farms. Life demands an engagement. And that engagement, you know, in the case of this conversation, starts with a mindset of one openness. And as I suggested earlier, humility. We don't actually know what we're doing. I wouldn't follow a recipe for very long from someone who I don't, who doesn't know what they're doing, but we're finding out as we act and observe and react. And, uh, and we find in the process that we're fully alive. And just to be sure, we do not come out of this unscathed. We are changed. Now I suppose agriculture would be a lot easier If all you had to do was follow a recipe and you were guaranteed that what you're trying to produce would be produced. Doesn't leave much room to innovate or be creative though. There are some recipes within agriculture like when to seed or cut hay 
But even those recipes are more or less based on what Daryl, Tim, and Sheldon said about learning from and observing nature. The next question I put to Tim and Daryl was, how do you change a mindset? And honestly, figuring out that piece might be the biggest thing we can do to help advance regenerative agriculture in Alberta and probably in other parts of the world. And don't get me wrong, financial and economic support would be extremely helpful. But changing the way we think about agriculture and the land is a pretty big one too, especially if your family's been farming the land or ranching the land the same way for generations. Plus, nobody really wants to be the person that they're talking about in the coffee shop tomorrow. Okay, I take that back. Almost no one wants to be that person. I have met some producers who do a lot for the land, who like the idea that they are a topic of discussion at the coffee shop. But come to think of it, I've never actually asked them why, but if I was the guess, probably gives them a feeling that they're doing something right. Just how do we change the mindset? I, I think we have underestimated the power of poetry. And I'm not much of a poet. But the power of language, words, ideas. And I think if we're going to make some good headway, we need to have sort of the artists of popular society, whether that's architects, city planners, speech writers for politicians, painters, musicians, uh, journalists, using their creative power to spark curiosity. Something's happening here that's different than what we thought. And if we can send people down that journey, they will want to engage with the land. And that will open up opportunities for different ways of farming, uh, different business models, uh, different ways of managing our city parks, our crown land, and our privately owned lands. You have no idea how gutted I still am that podcast hosts did not make Tim's list of creative people who are going to save the world. Yeah, just to add to it a little bit is, you know, because I am boots on the ground and dealing with producers one-on-one and they need to want to make a move and make a change. The, the show versus tell works. Uh, of course, we all know farmers and ranchers hate to tell, a, you know, they, they're good at what they do and they don't want to be told what to do. So government interaction, government control is I don't think is the way, but unfortunately, there will be some government money to help push it along a little bit too. At this point of the interview, I asked Tim and Daryl about something the panel had brought up at the Ranching Opportunities Conference. And that was that we might need to rethink value if we're going to adopt regenerative agriculture. I asked them what they meant by that. So what comes to mind for me first and foremost with this one would be value in dollars. And, you know, as much as there are a lot of niche markets out there and direct marketing, it's not for everyone. And, it, and we are still in a commodity-based area of the world, part of the world. We export the vast majority of what we grow. So we, can, we don't have population or we don't have the urbanized population to be able to market. You know, some guys are doing it very well. But not everyone can. To me, you know, especially on a broader, broad acre, larger 
operations, it becomes more of searching out those marketing opportunities, you know, doing the little things right, right from marketing to controlling costs, inputs. You know, you, you, Sheldon said it a couple of weeks ago as well, that regenerative isn't always about reduction of inputs or reduction of dollars. There's years and times that yet a little more investment is going to become, uh, could create a really big return. So managing risk is obviously part of that equation as well on a broader sense, whether it's crop insurance or price insurance or whatever it might be. But so how, how do we bring value back to it? I think it's just going to be a man. Oh, a lot of it's going to have a management aspect to it. Tim, same question. Like, I, I thought it was interesting how you even asked the audience at the conference, like, how might regenerative agriculture pay? So that, that was a really good thing to add on to the value question. But I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, that question, how might agriculture pay or regenerative agriculture pay, to me, was compelling because so often we live our lives in that notion of should. So here's how it should pay. It should pay because we're going to grow crops cheaper and that will create margin or we'll grow more. And so we'll get paid more, right? But that, that's sort of a very conventional mindset. And that to me is the low hanging fruit. I'm shooting for that. I'm a commodity producer. Uh, and Daryl's point of mitigating risk is, is a huge, to me, benefit of, of a regenerative system. Uh, particularly when you think of weather patterns and moisture retention and plant disease and these kinds of things. So, but beyond that, how might this pay? Well, what if a change in practice reduces my labor by 25%? There's value there. I didn't produce any more, right? But there's value there. What if I get a sense of quality of life uh, by eating the wild berries that grow on my farm because I reduced my labor 25%. I could, I had time to go and pick berries and make jam. And then all winter long, I get to enjoy that. How might that, and what would that benefit? If I knew what I was doing with plants, I could grow a really robust and flavorful garden and I could eat that fruit and that would merit some form of, of gain. Yeah, my kids might be more apt to return to the farm or it might pay because people want to, camp on my property and that that social capital becomes valuable it might pay because somebody adjacent to me wants me to manage their property because they see me as a steward and they give me access to capital that i could otherwise not attain so these are um, a couple of ways that i think when we start thinking about how might this pay okay and if i can attain that extra land base access to it. Now it cuts my overheads in half. So a lot of this is sort of being open to how a different set of values and this different set of interactions can pay. The other thing is that I've thought about, it's not going to inspire anyone on your podcast, maybe, because everybody just wants to farm. But if there's a human dimension to agriculture, why do we begrudge off-farm income? What if the farm becomes a place, a platform that actually inspires or informs our work off farm as teachers and journalists and pastors and consultants and, and whatever else? You know, as Tim was saying, that the value for me isn't always in dollars on what I'm doing on my, with my cows, with my land. The value in it is also 
what you just said is I get to learn and implement what I talk about day to day, learn some mistakes and people value. I have some skin in the game as well. I'm learning with them. I'm taking risks on with them rather than just making recommendations without knowing what they may or may not do. Oh, so I guess the value for me is I can afford to put a few dollars into quote unquote research on my own place and maybe not get the, the, the financial extraction out of it, but it goes into the knowledge bank as well. Well, and then it just gets into other forms again that veer off from agricultural production, but there's a outfit landowner outside of Calgary, people book online and they pay like, I don't know, 10 or 20 bucks to take their dog for a walk on this private property. If you set up the app, I know I haven't been any part of this, but I had a friend who, who books a time slot there every so often. And just think of the sort of what the passive income that could come from just having an app set up. And if, if only three people came a week, it's still 60 bucks, you know, for doing nothing times 52, you know, that's 1500 bucks. It pays for a couple of courses for your kid's tuition, you know, or whatever, right. Pays a gas bill and these kinds of things. If you start thinking outside the box, um, they open up. Any advice for an agricultural producer out there who's interested in transitioning their farm or ranch to regenerative agriculture, but not really too sure where to start. I think for for anyone that would be skeptical and, you know, anyone listening to this podcast may, may not be the skeptical person. They might be drinking the Kool-Aid or down the path already. So advice is just learn, open up your mind, look at different things. It, it's not only about the cow. It's not only about growing a crop, look at the soil. Think of the ecosystem. Everything matters within within that system, and it's not that we're in a natural ecosystem. We're we're in an agro ecosystem where things are different. So, but what can we do to mitigate the harm that we are that we are doing to the system? So, learn, talk to different people, listen to different people. There's lots of stuff out there to read and listen to. I think the big thing I would say is, is, is be curious and just start to ask, okay, why do these weeds grow? You know, it's unbelievable. Nature wants to grab sunlight and use it to mess around with carbon molecules and generate life. It's what it wants to do. And we have to work very hard to subdue that. And if we just start to ask, okay, what, what goods are coming from nature's propensity to exercise this photosynthetic process? And what, what is even one thing that I could do to extend that benefit on the landscape? And that could be on your garden, in your potting plants. It could be on a 30,000 acre farm or ranch, you know, but you just ask, what can we do to take advantage of that.
But the rest of this episode is the one-on-one conversation I had with Tim. Unfortunately, Daryl had to jump off to take another call. We discussed some of the ways regenerative agriculture could pay in actual dollars. Here's Tim explaining the Alternative Land Use Services, or ALICE project, that he has on his land. We have some um, areas on our farm that drain into a certain creek, and there's a priority to make that creek healthier. And so their Alice is willing to pay for upstream management in that watershed. And so, yeah, they're willing to pay $30 an acre along riparian zones that are managed with very specialized grazing parameters. What's great for me is that doubles the value of those acres because I can only get about $30 of grazing off of those acres and they're going to pay me 30, but I have to manage alongside their goals. If their goals align with mine, it's a, it's a win-win. Um, if their goals don't align with mine, it's not worth the headache. That's kind of where it's at. It, just because if you don't want to waste your, yeah, if you don't value the, the riparian zone, you just don't. But if you do, they're willing to come and help pay for fencing and such to pull it off. And they'll top up the value of those acres, which is great. Now, of course, carbon markets were going to come up in our discussion at one point. Given the complexity of carbon markets and soil carbon sequestration, neither one of us could come up with one definitive answer or statement as to how producers are going to get paid for storing carbon. You might want to reach out to the companies that do have offices in Alberta like Carbon Asset Solutions, Resco Solutions, or Blue Source if you're looking for an answer on that one there. Tim did bring up a cool idea about creating a carbon-backed currency to help regen egg pay. Which actually isn't that wild of an idea. Rabble Bank in the Netherlands launched the Rabble Carbon Bank last year to invest in carbon farming, supply chain decarbonization, and reducing emissions on the retail side of things. But here's uh, Tim sharing some of his thoughts on that carbon-backed currency. If we can pull this off, I think we should form a carbon-backed currency for a regenerative economy. And this idea might be totally bogus. And, but apparently there, there is someone in Europe who's trying to do this, which that's good. I hope they can pull it off. But just like we used to have a gold-backed currency, you can't have the currency unless you have this, this carbon in the system. And then we said, yeah, all Alberta oil is to be sold on this carbon currency. So you cannot do business in Alberta with uh, oil, coal, maybe even forestry maybe even agriculture, without buying and selling on this carbon-backed currency, which would then inherently give value and resources to carbon stocks. Is it a good idea? I don't know. And is it extremely complicated? Most certainly. Lastly, I asked him about that underlying assumption with regenerative agriculture, that by working with the biology in the soil, by working with what nature gives away for free, pretty much, we can reduce input costs. Tim didn't necessarily disagree with that, but he did bring up a really valid point. He mentioned that maybe we should think of it more as reallocating resources to a different area. Yeah, and and here is where the mindset's very important because is it because of the practice or is it because we're just looking in different in different places now? And I think it's both. Mm. Yeah, this year we're going to put down about 40 pounds of urea on our cropland for our winter cropping. 
and we have put down as much as a hundred, but we're, we're grazing and growing on the same acres, same crop acres every year. And so we are building nutrient because we're putting nutrient down and we're cycling nutrient through the cattle and the biology is doing its thing. So when we look at uh, different kinds of soil tests, you know, the Haney test is saying, you guys do not need X amount of ant. You know, if you take a certain, whatever the standard like soil lab is, they'd say, yeah, you have so much ant, you better put down hundred pounds if you want this much growth. But uh, when you look for different kinds of nitrogen and different kinds of carbon and, and you account for different kinds of biology, we, we most certainly are putting down less nitrogen than we were. And so 40 bucks, 200 bucks, you know, it's on our farm, on our scale, you know, we're talking, I don't know, I'd have to look at my spreadsheets again, but it might be 50 bucks an acre difference. Mm. So, you know, that's something, but if we, we might turn around and then spend that 50 bucks on seed using a different understory crop that we don't necessarily see an economic return on, but we want to extend photosynthesis. So we, we seed it as a relay. Or we use that money for soil testing, so we figure out what's going on, or we use that money for something else. So I think it's you, you put your resources in different places is, is probably the better expectation, mm. and we feel we feel better about those places. You know, I much I I would trade seed for fertilizer, and put seed down. Yeah, I'd give away the fertilizer and use seed if I could because it's a biological process, and that's that's what I want to be a part of. The last 10 minutes of this episode and the final words of this episode are going to go to Tim. He's a pretty profound thinker, and the guy has a way with words, so I think it's a good way to end it. Right at the end, I hit Tim with the same questions I had asked Rod Olson of YYC Growers in episode 43 and Jason Bradley of Olds College in episode 46. How do we accelerate the uptake of regenerative agriculture in Alberta? And why does regenerative agriculture matter? The, the question in the Regen Lab has kind of evolved now. So as we step into phase two, now it's about how might we grow Alberta's regenerative agriculture system in a way that preserves its integrity while maximizing the positive social, environmental, and economic impacts for communities. Uh, big question. Just curious how you would answer that in full or in part. Yeah, well, I think the underlying concern that the question is getting at is how do we avoid greenwashing, which is this notion of where the term regenerative agriculture just doesn't mean anything. And I think the most ludicrous example of it is that in my uh, the, the city near us, a number of lawns have a sign on them that say this is a green lawn. And what it is, it's an AstroTurf lawn. It's absolutely crazy. I can guarantee there will be less carbon beneath that green AstroTurf this summer than there was last summer. It, it, that is a respiring thing. Now, yeah, they don't have to mow it, but it's not capturing water. Every ounce of water off of that's either evaporating or flowing into the city drain. Well, now with what? Microparticles of plastics and whatever else. So we have to avoid the greenwashing that, that just makes biological systems that are inherent to life equivalent with astroturf lawns. It just isn't the same. 
but we need to employ the resources that we have before us, which is science, industry, economic tools like futures markets that afford liquidity and capital and investment, uh, regulation, government policy. I, as I alluded earlier, I think we, we need corporate imagination that pulls the markets and pulls the government policy and demands for action at the large level from the big players. And we are seeing that. The big players are investing in things like Alice and carbon offsets on a volunteer basis. Why? Because there is a civic imagination that's saying we can do better, we should do better. But as we, as we um, yeah, respond to the wiles of human imagination, we also have to do the rigor of saying just paying people for carbon may not be doing anything. So we have to test that. We have to measure it. And the hardest part in the whole thing is that we are in a very, very sophisticated society. I don't even know how my car works, right? I'm a farmer. I'm supposed to know lots of things, but I don't know what's in this jug I just bought that I'm going to put into my neighbor's sprayer and apply it to my land. I actually don't really know. I don't know where it came from. I don't know who made it. I don't know what's in it. It's very sophisticated. My, my neighbor who's going to do the spraying doesn't actually know how to run his sprayer, right? He has to call a, a tech lady to come and set it up every year because it's very, very sophisticated. And I think this is as we get bigger, the risk is that we um, become less integrated. And the question at hand is how do we have a system of integrity that is inherently disintegrated? Right? These are the same words. We want to preserve integrity, but we live in a disintegrated society. And so the, the, the tendency is to say, okay, well, let's keep it local. Let's keep it small because then we can, we can preserve integrity. Yes, we need some of that. But if you want to take a big scale, well, then we need what? Well, we need scientific integrity. We need regulatory integrity. We need an even playing field. Uh, we probably need laws around marketing and how we even use the words regenerative agriculture because they will be co-opted. So probably what will happen is in another five or 10 years, we'll use some other term because the poets are going to say this isn't good enough. We can do better. We can be more. No, it's not a simple answer. The good news is look at the advancements we've made as human society. It is absolutely phenomenal. We sent like a 80 or 90 year old actor into space, right? We could do that. Surely we can figure out how to capture sunlight through plants that want to do it. This isn't even rocket science. It's about collective will and curiosity and humility, willing, willing to submit to these processes. Yeah, there's this underlying assumption in this episode in the other Regen Egg episodes we've done, and also with the Regenerative Agriculture Lab, that regenerative agriculture is something that we need, that it needs to scale out. And I guess, and I actually learned this from talking to Jason Bradley about the exact same thing, about the importance of asking ourselves why a few times before you say how or ask how. So what I'm asking you is, why does regenerative agriculture matter? Why is it important? Yeah, for me, I think it matters is because it's about what human beings are. And if we are to realize 
even a hint of the fullness of life, we have to begin to open our eyes to the fact that it's not our job to impose our will on everything, uh, but to be a dance partner. And yeah, you can get into a boxing ring and have one experience and you can get into onto a dance floor and have another experience. And they might look very similar. People responding to each other through coordinated movements, but the underlying assumption of how you're going to make your movements is completely different between a boxing match and a dance. And I think if we're to fully realize uh, the profundity of life, uh, the meaning of why we exist, the um, potential for things like peace, then we need regenerative agriculture. Long pause, because that might have been sufficient. Do you feel it was sufficient? Because if you got more to say, you can say it. Yeah, well, I haven't quite, I haven't quite been able to wrestle this one through. There's probably been books written on it, but you notice the difference between a drought and a famine mm. is that in a, a drought, drought can happen anywhere, but a famine requires violence and war. That's what creates a famine. And so we're lucky in Canada, that on the prairies anyways, that we have a landscape that's been shaped by drought. But increasingly, we have landscapes on our planet that are shaped by famine. What's the difference? It's hard to come back from a famine. And the violence imposed on a landscape and the people and the animals and the creatures creates these deserts. And I guess one thing I might fear is that under our modern industrial complex, just in blind faith of what we have going now is by far the best thing possible, could impose a famine on our landscapes because it's so violent in its reach and its nature. That's a little more dark and foreboding, maybe. You know? <laughs> Sobering. But, but it, yeah. And again, I'm not hopeless in this because the invitation of creation is to participate in the generative life. The invitation is, it will not cease. And if humanity ceases, the invitation will still be there. Gravity, uh, weak and strong nuclear forces, electromagneticism, magneticism, it, it'll be there. And the sun's rays, and the desire of carbon molecules to find a way to bond into complex things and for it to perpetuate itself through, through a narrative of things like DNA, it seems that the land will do this. The mm. question is, do we want to be a part of it or not? Mm. I think as human beings, we need regenerative agriculture because it, it is the result of a posture that's open to life. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based initiative empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and the Regenerative Agriculture Lab. We produce a farmer's blog. We work with rural communities to develop their own renewable energy projects. And of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. 
The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Marie Galanka in Athabasca, Lance Tailfeathers in Lethbridge, and new to the team is Shiana Younger in Brownfield. Welcome aboard, Shiana. The podcast is funded by a variety of Alberta-based foundations. My parts of the podcast were recorded in Calgary, which means they were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in Métis Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.